Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're going to be continuing Captain Joshua Slocum's Sailing Alone Around the World, and we're on chapter 15. On the morning of the 26th, Gloucester Island was close aboard, and the spray anchored in the evening at Port Denison, where rests, on a hill, the sweet little town of Bowen, the future watering place and health resort of Queensland. The country all about here had a healthful appearance. The harbour was easy of approach, spacious and safe, and afforded excellent holding ground. It was quiet in Bowen when the spray arrived, and the good people, with an hour to throw away on the second evening of her arrival, came down to the School of Arts to talk about the voyage, it being the latest event. It was duly advertised in the two little papers, Boomerang and Nully Nully, in the one the day before the affair came off, and in the other the day after, which was all the same to the editor, and for that matter, it was the same to me. Besides this, circulars were distributed with a flourish, and the best bellman in Australia was employed. But I could have keel-hauled the wretch, bell and all, when it came to the door of the little hotel where my prospective audience and I were dining, and with his chattering bell and fiendish yell made noises that would awake the dead, all over the voyage of the spray from Boston to Bowen, the two hubs and the cartwheels of creation, as the boomerang afterwards said. Mr. Miles, magistrate, harbour master, land commissioner, gold warden, etc., was a chairman, and introduced me, for what reason I will never know, except to embarrass me with a sense of vain ostentation and embitter my life, for heaven knows I had met every person in town the first hour ashore. I knew them all by name now, and they all knew me. However, Mr. Miles was a good talker. Indeed, I tried to induce him to go on and tell the story while I showed the pictures, but this he refused to do. I may explain that it was a talk illustrated by a stereopticon. The views were good, but the lantern, a 30 shilling affair, was wretched and had only an oil lamp in it. I sailed early the next morning, before the papers came out, thinking it best to do so. They each appeared with a favourable column, however, of what they called a lecture, so I learned afterward, and they had a kind word for the bellman besides. From Port Denison, the sloop ran before the constant trade wind and made no stop at all, night or day, till she reached Cooktown on the Endeavour River, where she arrived Monday, May 31st, 1897, before a furious blast of wind encountered that day 50 miles down the coast. On this parallel of latitude is the high ridge and backbone of the trade winds, which about Cooktown amount often to a hard gale. I had been charged to navigate the route with extra care and to feel my way over the ground. The skilled officer of the Royal Navy who advised me to take the Barrier Reef Passage wrote me that HMS Orlando steamed nights as well as days through it, but that I, under sail, would jeopardise my vessel on coral reefs if I undertook to do so. Confidentially, it would have been no easy matter finding anchorage every night, the hard work, too, of getting the sloop underway every morning was finished, I had hoped, when she cleared the Strait of Magellan. Besides that, the best of Admiralty charts made it possible to keep on sailing night and day. Indeed, with a fair wind and in the clear weather of that season, the way through the Barrier Reef Channel, in all sincerity, was clearer than a highway in a busy city, and by all odds less dangerous. But to anyone contemplating the voyage, I would say beware of reefs, day or night, or remaining on the land, be wary still. 
The spray came flying into port like a bird, said the Longshore Daily Papers of Cooktown the morning after she arrived, and it seemed strange, they added, that only one man could be seen on board working the craft. The spray was doing her best to be sure, for it was near night and she was in haste to find a perch before dark. Tacking inside of all the craft in port, I moored her at sunset nearly abreast the Captain Cook monument, and next morning went ashore to feast my eyes on the very stones the great navigator had seen, for I was now on a seaman's consecrated ground. But there seemed a question in Cookstown's mind as to the exact spot where his ship, the Endeavour, hove down for repairs on her memorable voyage around the world. Some said it was not at all at the place where the monument stood. A discussion of the subject was going on one morning, where I happened to be, and a young lady present, turning to me as one of some authority in nautical matters, very flatteringly asked my opinion. Well, I could see no reason why Captain Cook, if he made up his mind to repair his ship inland, couldn't have dredged down a channel to the place where the monument now stood, if he had a dredging machine with him, and afterward filled it up again, for Captain Cook could do most anything, and nobody ever said that he hadn't had a dredger along. The young lady seemed to lean to my way of thinking and, following up the story of the historical voyage, asked if I had visited the point farther down the harbour where the great circumnavigator was murdered. This took my breath, but a bright schoolboy coming along relieved my embarrassment for, like all boys, seeing that information was wanted, he volunteered to supply it. Said he, Captain Cook wasn't murdered here at all, madam. He was killed in Africa, a lion ate him. Here I was reminded of distressful days gone by. I think it was in 1866 that the old steamship Suchet from Batavia for Sydney put in at Cooktown for scurvy grass, and, as I always thought, incidentally to land males. On her last sick list was my fevered self, and so I didn't see the place till I came back on the spray 31 years later. And now I saw coming into port the physical wrecks of miners from New Guinea, destitute and dying. Many had died on the way and had been buried at sea. He would have been a hardened wretch who could look on and not try to do something for them. The sympathy of all went out to these sufferers, but the little town was already straightened from a long run on its own benevolence. I thought of the matter, of the lady's gift to me at Tasmania, which I had promised myself I would keep only as a loan, but found now, to my embarrassment, that I had invested the money. However, the good Cooktown people wished to hear a story of the sea and how the crew of the spray fared when illness got aboard of her. Accordingly, the little Presbyterian church on the hill was opened for a conversation. Everybody talked, and they made a roaring success of it. Judge Chester, the magistrate, was at the head of the gam, and so it was bound to succeed. It was he who had annexed the island of New Guinea to Great Britain. While I was about it, said he, I annexed the blooming lot of it. There was a ring in the statement pleasant to the ear of an old voyager. However, the Germans made such a row over the judge's mainsail hall that they got a share of the venture. Well, I was indebted to the miners of Cooktown for the great privilege of adding a mite to a worthy course. And to Judge Chester, all the town was indebted for a general good time. The matter standing so, I sailed on June 6th, 1897, heading away for the north as before. Arrived at a very inviting anchorage about sundown, the 7th. I came to, for the night, abreast the Claremont lightship. This was the only time throughout the passage of the Barrier Reef Channel that the spray anchored 
except at Port Denison and at Endeavour River. On the very night following this, however, the 8th, I regretted keenly for an instant that I had not anchored before dark, as I might have done easily under the lee of a coral reef. It happened in this way. The spray had just passed M Reef Lightship and left the light dipping astern when going at full speed. With sheets off, she hit the M Reef itself on the north end where I expected to see a beacon. She swung off quickly on her heel, however, and with one more bound on a swell cut across the shoal point so quickly that I hardly knew how it was done. The beacon wasn't there. At least I didn't see it. I hadn't time to look for it after she struck, and certainly it didn't matter much then whether I saw it or not. But this gave her a fine departure for Cape Grenville, the next point ahead. I saw the ugly boulders under the sloop's keel as she flashed over them, and I made a mental note of it, that the letter M, for which the roof was named, was the 13th one in our alphabet, and that 13, as noted years before, was still my lucky number. The natives of Cape Greenville are notoriously bad, and I was advised to give them the go-by. Accordingly, from M Reef, I steered outside of the adjacent islands to be on the safe side. Skipping along now, the spray passed Home Island, off the pitch of the Cape, soon after midnight, and squared away on a westerly course. A short time later, she fell in with a steamer bound south, groping her way in the dark and making the night dismal with her own black smoke. From Home Island, I made for Sunday Island, and bringing that abeam, shortened sail not wishing to make Bird Island further along, before daylight, the wind being still fresh and the islands being low, with dangers about them. Wednesday, June 9th, 1897, at daylight, Bird Island was dead ahead, distant two and a half miles, which I considered near enough. A strong current was pressing the sloop forward. I did not shorten sail too soon in the night. The first and only Australian canoe seen on the voyage was encountered here, standing from the mainland with a rag of sail set, bound for this island. A long, slim fish that leaped on board in the night was found on deck this morning. I had it for breakfast. The spry chap was no larger around than a herring, which it resembled in every aspect, except that it was three times as long. But that was so much the better, for I am rather fond of fresh herring, anyway. A great number of fisher birds were about this day, which was one of the pleasantest on God's earth. The spray, dancing over the waves, entered Albany Pass as the sun drew low in the west over the hills of Australia. At 7.30pm, the spray, now through the pass, came to anchor in a cove in the mainland, near a pearl fisherman called the Tarawa, which was at anchor, her captain, from the deck of this vessel, directing me to a berth. This done, he at once came on board to clasp hands. The Tarawa was a Californian, and Captain Jones, her master, was an American. On the following morning, Captain Jones brought on board two pairs of exquisite pearl shells, the most perfect ones I ever saw. They were probably the best he had, for Jones was the heart yarn of a sailor. He assured me that if I would remain a few hours longer, some friends from Somerset nearby would pay us all a visit, and one of the crew sorting shells on deck guessed they would. The mate guessed so too. The friends came as even the second mate and cook had guessed they would. They were Mr. Jardine, stockman, famous throughout the land and his family. Mrs. Jardine was the niece of King Maliatoa, the cousin to the beautiful Famu Sami, to make the sea burn, who visited the spray at Apia. 
Mr. Jardine was himself a fine specimen of a Scotsman. With his little family about him, he was content to live in this remote place, accumulating the comforts of life. The fact of the Tarawa having been built in America accounted for the crew, Boy Jim and all, being such good guessers. Strangely enough, though, Captain Jones himself, the only American aboard, was never heard to guess at all. After a pleasant chat and a goodbye to the people of the Tarawa and to Mr. and Mrs. Jardine, I again weighed anchor and stood across for Thursday Island, now in plain view, mid-channel in Torres Strait, where I arrived shortly after noon. Here the spray remained until June 24th. Being the only American representative in port, this tarry was imperative, for on the 22nd was the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. The two days over were, as sailors say, for coming up. Meanwhile, I spent pleasant days about the island. Mr. Douglas, resident magistrate, invited me on a cruise in his steamer one day among the islands in the Torres Strait. This being a scientific expedition in charge of Professor Mason Bailey, botanist, we rambled over Friday and Saturday islands where I got a glimpse of botany. Miss Bailey, the professor's daughter, accompanied the expedition and told me of many indigenous plants with long names. The 22nd day was the great day on Thursday Island, for then we had not only the jubilee, but a jubilee with a grand corroboree in it. Mr. Douglas, having brought some 400 native warriors and their wives and children across from the mainland to give the celebration the true native touch, for when they do a thing on Thursday Island, they do it with a roar. The Corroboree was, at any rate, a howling success. It took place at night, and the performers, painted in fantastic colours, danced or leaped about before a blazing fire. Some were rigged and painted like birds and beasts, in which the emu and kangaroo were well represented. One fellow leaped like a frog. Some had the human skeleton painted on their bodies while they jumped about threateningly, spear in hand, ready to strike down some imaginary enemy. The kangaroo hopped and danced with natural ease and grace, making a fine figure. All kept time to music, vocal and instrumental. The instruments, save the mark, being bits of wood, which they beat one against the other, and saucer-like bones held in the palm of the hands, which they knocked together, making a dull sound. It was a show at once amusing, spectacular, and hideous. I observed that on the day of the Jubilee, no foreign flag was waving in the public grounds except the Stars and Stripes, which, along with the Union Jack, guarded the gateway and floated in many places, from the tiniest to the standard size. Speaking to Mr. Douglas, I ventured a remark on this compliment to my country. Oh, said he, this is a family affair, and we do not consider the Stars and Stripes a foreign flag. The spray, of course, flew her best bunting and hoisted the Jack as well as her own noble flag as high as she could. On June 24th, the spray, well fitted in every way, sailed for the long voyage ahead, down the Indian Ocean. Mr. Douglas gave her a flag as she was leaving his island. The spray had now passed nearly all the dangers of the Coral Sea and Torres Strait, which indeed were not a few, and all ahead from this point was plain sailing and a straight course. The trade wind was still blowing fresh and could be safely counted on now down to the coast of Madagascar, if not beyond that for it was still early in the season. I had no wish to arrive off the Cape of Good Hope before midsummer, and it was now early winter. I had been off that Cape once in July, which was, of course, midwinter there. The stout ship I then commanded encountered only fierce hurricanes, and she bore them ill. 
I wish for no winter gales now. It was not that I feared them more, being in the spray instead of a large ship, but that I would prefer the fine weather in any case. It is true that one may encounter heavy gales off the Cape of Good Hope at any season of the year, but in the summer they are less frequent and do not continue so long. And so with time enough before me to admit of a run ashore on the islands en route, I shape the new course now for Keeling Cocos, Atoll Islands, distant 2,700 miles. Taking a departure from Booby Island, which the sloop passed early in the day, I decided to sight Timor on the way, an island of high mountains. Booby Island I had seen before, but only once, however, and that was when in the steamship Suchet, on which I was hove down in a fever. When she steamed along this way, I was well enough to crawl on deck to look at Booby Island. Had I died for it, I would have seen that island. In those days, passing ships landed stores in a cave on the island for shipwrecked and distressed wayfarers. Captain Airy of the Suchet, a good man, sent a boat to the cave with his contribution to the general store. The stores were landed in safety, and the boat, returning, brought back from the improvised post office there a dozen or more letters, most of them left by whalemen, with the request that the first homeward-bound ship would carry them along and see to their mailing, which had been the custom of this strange, strange postal service for many years. Some of the letters brought back by our boats were directed to New Bedford and some to Fairhaven, Massachusetts. There is a light today on Booby Island and regular packet communication with the rest of the world and the beautiful uncertainty of the fate of letters left there is a thing of the past. I made no call at the little island, but standing close in, exchanged signals with the keeper of the light. Sailing on, the sloop was at once in the Arafura Sea, where for days she sailed in water milky white and green and purple. It was my good fortune to enter the sea on the last quarter of the moon, the advantage being that in the dark nights I witnessed the phosphorescent light effect at night in its greatest splendour. The sea, where the sloop disturbed it, seemed all ablaze, so that by its light I could see the smallest articles on deck, and her wake was a path of fire. On the 25th of June, the sloop was already clear of all the shoals and dangers and was sailing on a smooth sea as steadily as before, but with speed somewhat slackened. I got out the flying jib made at Juan Fernandez and set it as a spinnaker from the stoutest bamboo that Mrs. Stevenson had given me at Samoa. The spinnaker pulled like a sodger and the bamboo holding its own, the spray mended her pace. Several pigeons flying across today from Australia toward the islands, bent their course over the spray. Smaller birds were seen flying in the opposite direction. In the part of the Arafura that I came to first, where it was shallow, sea snakes writhed about on the surface and tumbled over and over in the waves. As a sloop sailed farther on, where the sea became deep, they disappeared. In the ocean, where the water is blue, not one was ever seen. In the days of serene weather, there was not much to do but to read and take rest on the spray, to make up as much as possible for the rough time off Cape Horn, which was not yet forgotten, and to forestall the Cape of Good Hope by a store of ease. My sea journal was now much the same from day to day, something like this of June 26th and 27th, for example. June 26th, in the morning, it is a bit squally. Later in the day, blowing a steady breeze. On the log at noon is 130 miles, Subtract, correction for slip, 10 miles, 120 miles covered. Add for current, 10 miles, total 130 miles. 
latitude by observation at noon, 10 degrees 23 south, longitude as per mark on the chart. There wasn't much brain work in that log, I'm sure. June 27th makes a better showing when all is told. First of all, today was a flying fish on deck, fried it in butter, 133 miles on the log. For slip, off and for current, on, as per guess, about equal, let it go at that. Latitude by observation at noon, 10 degrees, 25 south. For several days now, the spray sailed west on the parallel of 10 degrees, 25 south, as true as a hair. If she deviated at all from that through the day or night, and this may have happened, she was back, strangely enough, at noon at the same latitude. But the greatest science was in reckoning the longitude. My tin clock and only timepiece had by this time lost its minute hand, but after I boiled her, she told the hours, and that was near enough on a long stretch. On the second day of July, the great island of Timor was in view away to the north. On the following day, I saw Dana Island not far off, and a breeze came up from the land at night, fragrant of the spices or whatnot of the coast. On the 11th, with all sail set and with the spinnaker still abroad, Christmas Island, about noon, came into view one point on the starboard bow. Before night it was a beam, and distance two and a half miles. The surface of the island appeared evenly rounded from the sea to a considerable height in the centre. In outline it was as smooth as a fish, and a long ocean swell rolling up broke against the sides where it lay like a monster asleep, motionless on the sea. It seemed to have the proportions of a whale, and as the sloop sailed along its side to the part where the head would be, there was a nostril, even which was a blowhole, through a ledge of rock where every wave that dashed threw up a shaft of water, lifelike and real. It had been a long time since I last saw this island, but I remember my temporary admiration for the captain of the ship I was then in, the Tangeri, when he sang out one morning from the quarter-deck well aft, Go aloft there, one of ye, and put a pair of eyes and see Christmas Island. Sure enough, there the island was in sight from the royal yard. Captain M had thus made a great hit, and he never got over it. The chief mate, terror of us ordinaries in the ship, walking never to windward of the captain, now took himself very humbly to leeward altogether. When we arrived at Hong Kong, there was a letter in the ship's mail for me, and I was in the boat with the captain some hours while he had it. But do you suppose he could hand a letter to a seaman? No, indeed, not even to an ordinary seaman. When we got to the ship, he gave it to the first mate, the first mate gave it to the second mate, and he laid it, mitchingly, on the capstan head, where I could get it. Chapter 16 To the Keeling Cocos Islands was now only 550 miles, but even in this short run it was necessary to be extremely careful in keeping a true course else I would miss the atoll. On the 12th, some hundred miles southwest of Christmas Island, I saw anti-trade clouds flying up from the southwest very high over the regular winds, which weakened them now for a few days, while a swell heavier than usual set in also from the southwest. A winter gale was going on in the direction of the Cape of Good Hope. Accordingly, I steered higher to windward, allowing 20 miles a day while this went on for change of current, and it was not too much, for on that course I made the Keeling Islands right ahead. The first unmistakable sign of the land was a visit one morning from a white tern that fluttered very knowingly about the vessel and then took itself off westward with a business-like air in its wing. 
The tern is called by the islanders the pilot of Keeling Kokos. Father Arne came among a great number of birds fishing and fighting over whatever they caught. My reckoning was up and springing aloft, I saw from halfway up the mast coconut trees standing out of the water ahead. I expected to see this. Still, it thrilled me as an electric shock might have done. I slid down the mast, trembling under the strangest sensations, and not able to resist the impulse, I sat on deck and gave way to my emotions. To folks in a parlour on shore this may seem weak indeed, but I am telling the story of a voyage alone. I didn't touch the helm, for with the current and heave of the sea, the sloop found herself at the end of the run, absolutely in the fairway of the channel. You couldn't have beaten it in the navy. Then I trimmed her sails by the wind, took the helm, and flogged her up the couple of miles or so abreast of the harbour landing, where I cast anchor at 3.30pm, July 17th, 1897, 23 days from Thursday Island. The distance run was 2,700 miles as the crow flies. This would have been a fair Atlantic voyage. It was a delightful sail. During those 23 days, I had not spent altogether more than three hours at the helm, including the time occupied in beating into Keeling Harbour. I just lashed the helm and let her go. Whether the wind was abeam or dead aft, it was all the same. She always sailed on her course. No part of the voyage up to this point, taking it by and large, had been so finished as this. The Keeling Cocos Islands, according to Admiral Fitzroy, Royal Navy, lie between the latitudes of 11 degrees 50 minutes and 12 degrees 12 minutes south, and the longitudes of 96 degrees 51 minutes and 96 degrees 58 minutes east. They were discovered in 1608 to 1609 by Captain William Keeling, then in the service of the East India Company. The southern group consists of seven or eight islands and islets on the atoll, which is the skeleton of what someday, according to the history of coral reefs, will be a continuous island. North Keeling has no harbour, is seldom visited and is of no importance. The South Keelings are a strange little world with a romantic history all their own. They have been visited occasionally by the floating spar of some hurricane-swept ship or by a tree that has drifted all the way from Australia or by an ill-starred ship cast away, and finally by man. Even a rock once drifted to Keeling, held fast among the roots of a tree. Notes here on pages 211-212. Mr. Andrew J. Leach, reporting July 21st, 1897, through Governor Kinnersley of Singapore to Joseph Chamberlain, Colonial Secretary, said concerning the Iphigemia's visit to the atoll, as we left the ocean depths of deepest blue and entered the coral circle, the contrast was most remarkable. The brilliant colours of the waters, transparent to a depth of over 30 feet, now purple, now of the bluest sky blue, and now green with the white crests of the waves flashing under a brilliant sun, the encircling palm-clad islands, the gaps between which were to the south undiscernible, the white sand shores and the whiter gaps where breakers appeared, and lastly the lagoon itself, seven or eight miles across from north to south and five to six from east to west, presented a sight never to be forgotten. After some little delay, Mr. Sidney Ross, the eldest son of George Ross, came off to meet us, and soon after, accompanied by the doctor and another officer, we went ashore. On reaching the landing stage, we found hauled up for cleaning, etc., the spray of Boston, a yawl of 12.7 tonnes gross, the property of Captain Joshua Slocum. 
He arrived at the island on the 17th of July, 23 days out from Thursday Island. This extraordinary solitary traveller left Boston some two years ago single-handed, crossed to Gibraltar, sailed down to Cape Horn, passed through the Strait of Magellan and to the Society Islands, thence to Australia and through the Torres Strait to Thursday Island. End of notes. After the discovery of the islands by Captain Keeling, their first notable visitor was Captain John Clunis Ross, who in 1814 touched in the ship Borneo on a voyage to India. Captain Ross returned two years later with his wife and family and his mother-in-law, Mrs. de Mock, and eight sailor artisans to take possession of the islands, but found there already one Alexander Hare, who meanwhile had marked the little atoll as a sort of Eden for a seraglio of Malay women, which he moved over from the coast of Africa. It was Ross's own brother, oddly enough, who freighted Hare and his crowd of women to the islands, not knowing of Captain John's plans to occupy the little world. And so Hare was there with his outfit, as if he had come to stay. On his previous visit, however, Ross had nailed the English Jack to a mast on Horsburg Island, one of the group. After two years, shreds of it still fluttered in the wind, and his sailors, nothing loath, began at once the invasion of the new kingdom, to take possession of it, women and all. The force of 40 women, with only one man to command them, was not equal to driving eight sturdy sailors back into the sea. And the note says, In the accounts given in Finlay's sailing directory of some of the events, there is a chronological discrepancy. I follow the accounts gathered from the old captain's grandsons and from records on the spot. End quote. From this time on, Hare had a hard time of it. He and Ross did not get on well as neighbours. The islands were too small and too near for characters so widely different. Hare had oceans of money and might have lived well in London, but he had been governor of a wild colony in Borneo and could not contain himself to the tame life that prosy civilization affords. And so he hung on to the atoll with his 40 women, retreating little by little before Ross and his sturdy crew, till at last he found himself and his harem on the little island known to this day as Prison Island, where, like Bluebeard, he confined his wives in a castle. The channel between the islands was narrow, the water was not deep, and the eight Scotch sailors wore long boots. Hare was now dismayed. He tried to compromise with rum and other luxuries, but these things only made matters worse. On the day following the first St. Andrew's celebration on the island, Hare, consumed with rage and no longer on speaking terms with the captain, dashed off a note to him saying, Dear Ross, I thought when I sent rum and roast pig to your sailors that they would stay away from my flower garden. In reply to which the captain, burning with indignation, shouted from the centre of the island where he stood, Ahoy there on Prison Island! You, Hare, don't you know that rum and roast pig are not a sailor's heaven? Hare said afterward that one might have heard the captain's roar across to Java. The lawless establishment was soon broken up by the women deserting Prison Island and putting themselves under Ross's protection. Hare then went to Batavia, where he met his death. My first impression upon landing was that the crime of infanticide had not reached the islands of Keeling Cocos. The children have all come to welcome you, explained Mr. Ross as they mustered at the jetty by hundreds of all ages and sizes. The people of this country were all rather shy, but 
young or old, they never passed one or saw one passing their door without a salutation. In their musical voices, they would say, Are you walking? Jalan, Jalan. Will you come along? One would answer. For a long time after I arrived, the children regarded the one-man ship with suspicion and fear. A native man had been blown away to sea many years before, and they hinted to one another that he might have been changed from black to white and returned in the sloop. For some time, every movement I made was closely watched. They were particularly interested in what I ate. One day, after I had been boot-topping the sloop with a composition of coal tar and other stuff, and while I was taking my dinner with the luxury of blackberry jam, I heard a commotion and then a yell and a stampede as the children ran away yelling, The captain is eating coal tar! The captain is eating coal tar! But they soon found out that this same coal tar was very good to eat and that I brought a quantity of it. One day when I was spreading a sea biscuit thick with it for a wide-awake youngster, I heard them whisper, chut-chut, meaning that a shark had bitten my hand, which they observed was lame. Thenceforth they regarded me as a hero, and I had not fingers enough for the little bright-eyed tots that wanted to cling to them and follow me about. Before this, when I held out my hand and said, come, they would shy off for the nearest house and say, dingin, it's cold, or ujan, it's going to rain. But it was now accepted that I was not the returned spirit of the lost black, and I had plenty of friends about the island, rain or shine. One day after this, when I had tried to haul the sloop and found her fast in the sand, the children all clapped their hands and cried that a capiting, or crab, was holding her by the keel, and little Ophelia, 10 or 12 years of age, wrote in the spray's logbook, A hundred men with might and main on the windless hove, yo-ho. The cable only came in twain, the ship she would not go. For child to tell the strangest thing, the keel was held by a great Kipiting. This being so or not, it was decided that the Mohammedan priest Sama the Emin, for a pot of jam, should ask Mohammed to bless the voyage and make the crab let go the sloop's keel, which it did, if it had hold, and she floated on the very next tide. On the 22nd of July arrived HMS Iphigenia, with Mr. Justice Andrew J. Leach and other court officers on board, on a circuit of inspection among the strait settlements, of which Keeling Cocos was a dependency, to hear complaints and try cases by law, if any there were to try. They found the spray, hauled ashore, and tied to a coconut tree. But at the Keeling Islands there had not been a grievance to complain of since the day that hair migrated, for the Rosses have always treated the islanders as their own family. If there is a paradise on this earth... It is Keeling. There was not a case for a lawyer, but something had to be done, for here were two ships in port, a great man of war, and the spray. Instead of a lawsuit, a dance was got up, and all the officers who could leave their ship came ashore. Everybody on the island came, old and young, and the governor's great hall was filled with people. All that could get on their feet danced, while the babies lay in heaps in the corners of the room, content to look on. My little friend Ophelia danced with the judge. For music, two fiddles screeched over and over again the good old tune, We Won't Go Home Till Morning, and we did not. The women at the Keelings do not do all the drudgery, as in many places visited on the voyage. It would cheer the heart of a Fujian woman to see the Keeling, lord of creation, up a coconut tree. Besides cleverly climbing the trees, the men of Keeling build exquisitely modelled canoes, 
By far the best workmanship in boat building I saw on the voyage was here. Many finished mechanics dwelt under the palms at Keeling, and the hum of the bandsaw and the ring of the anvil were heard from morning till night. The first Scotch settlers left there the strength of northern blood and the inheritance of steady habits. No benevolent society has ever done so much for any islanders as the noble Captain Ross and his sons, who have followed his example of industry and thrift. Admiral Fitzroy of the Beagle, who visited here, where many things are reversed, spoke of these singular though small islands where crabs eat coconuts, fish eat coral, dogs catch fish, men ride on turtles, and shells are dangerous man-traps, adding that the greater part of the sea-fowl roost on branches and many rats make their nests in the tops of palm trees. My vessel being refitted, I decided to load her with the famous mammoth tridacna shell of Keeling found in the bayou nearby, and right here, within sight of the village, I came near losing the crew of the spray. Not from putting my foot in a man-trap shell, however, but from carelessly neglecting to look after the details of a trip across the harbour in a boat. I had sailed over oceans. I have since completed a course over them all and sailed round the world without so nearly meeting a fatality as on that trip across a lagoon where I trusted all to someone else and he, weak mortal that he was, perhaps trusted all to me. However that may be, I found myself with a thoughtless African in a rickety bateau that was fitted with a rotten sail and this blew away in mid-channel in a squall that sent us drifting helplessly to sea where we should have been incontinently lost. With the whole ocean before us to leeward, I was dismayed to see while we drifted that there was not a paddle or an oar in the boat. There was an anchor, to be sure, but not enough rope to tie a cat, and we were already in deep water. By great good fortune, however, there was a pole. Plying this as a paddle with the utmost energy and by the merest accidental flaw in the wind to favour us, the trap of a boat was worked into a shoal water where we could touch bottom and push her ashore. With Africa, the nearest coast to leeward, 3,000 miles away, with not so much as a drop of water in the boat and a lean and hungry crewmate looking on, well, cast the lot as one might, the crew of the spray in a little while would have been hard to find. It is needless to say that I took no more such chances. The Tridacna were afterward procured in a safe boat, 30 of them taking the place of three tons of cement ballast, which I threw overboard to make room and give buoyancy. On August 22nd, the capiting or whatever else it was that held the sloop in the islands let go its hold and she swung out to sea under all sail, heading again for home. Mounting one or two heavy rollers on the fringe of the atoll, she cleared the flashing reefs. Long before dark, Keeling Cocos with its thousand souls, as sinless in their lives as perhaps it is possible for frail mortals to be, was left out of sight astern. Out of sight I say except in my strongest affections. The sea was rugged, and the spray washed heavily when hauled on the wind which course I took for the island of Rodriguez, which brought the sea abeam. The true course for the island was west by south, one quarter south, and the distance was 1900 miles, but I steered considerably to the windward of that to allow for the heave of the sea and other leeward effects. My sloop on this course ran under reef sails for days together. I naturally tired of the never-ending motion of the sea and above all of the wetting I got whenever I showed myself on deck. Under these heavy weather conditions, the spray seemed to lag behind on her course at least 
I attributed to these conditions a discrepancy in the log, which by the 15th day out from the Keelings amounted to 150 miles between the rotator and the mental calculations I had kept of what she should have gone, and so I kept an eye lifting for land. I could see about sundown this day a bunch of clouds that stood in one spot right ahead, while the other clouds floated on. This was a sign of something. By midnight, as the sloop sailed on, a black object appeared where I had seen the resting clouds. It was still a long way off, but there could be no mistaking this. It was the high island of Rodriguez. I hauled in the patent log, which I was now towing more from habit than from necessity, for I had learned the spray and her ways along before this. If one thing was clearer than another in her voyage, it was that she could be trusted to come out right and in safety, though at the same time I always stood ready to give her the benefit of even the least doubt. The officers, who are overshore and know it all like a book, are the ones I have observed who wreck the most ships and lose the most lives. The cause of the discrepancy in the log was one often met with, namely coming in contact with some large fish. Two out of the four blades of the rotator were crushed or bent, the work probably of a shark. Being sure of the sloop's position, I lay down to rest and to think, and I felt better for it. By daylight, the island was abeam, about three miles away. It wore a hard, weather-beaten appearance there, all alone, far out in the Indian Ocean, like land adrift. The windward side was uninviting, but there was a good port to leeward, and I hauled in now close on the wind for that. A pilot came out to take me into the inner harbour, which was reached through a narrow channel among coral reefs. It was a curious thing that at all the islands some reality was insisted on as unreal, while improbabilities were clothed as hard facts. And so it happened here that the good abbe a few days before had been telling his people about the coming of Antichrist, and when they saw the spray sail into the harbour, all feather white before a gale of wind and running all standing upon the beach with only one man aboard, they cried, May the Lord help us, it is he, and he has come in a boat, which I say would have been the most improbable way of his coming. Nevertheless, the news went flying through the place. The governor of the island, Mr. Roberts, came down immediately to see what it was all about, for the little town was in great commotion. One elderly woman, when she heard of my advent, made for her house and locked herself in. When she heard that I was actually coming up the street, she barricaded her doors and did not come out while I was on the island, a period of eight days. Governor Roberts and his family did not share the fears of their people, but came on board at the jetty where the sloop was berthed, and their example induced others to come also. The governor's young boys took charge of the spray's dinghy at once, and my visit cost His Excellency, besides great hospitality to me, the building of a boat for them like the one belonging to the spray. My first day in this land of promise was to me like a fairy tale. For many days I had studied the charts and counted the time of my arrival at this spot, as one might his entrance to the islands of the blessed, looking upon it as the terminus of the last long run, made irksome by the want of many things, with which, from this time on, I could keep well supplied. And behold, here was the sloop, arrived and made securely fast to appear in Rodriguez. On the first evening ashore, in the land of napkins and cut glass, I saw before me still the ghosts of hempen towels and of mugs with handles knocked off. Instead of tossing on the sea, however, as I might have been, here was I in a bright hall, surrounded by sparkling wit and dining with the governor of the island. Aladdin, I cried, where is your lamp? 
My fisherman's lantern, which I got at Gloucester, has shown me better things than your smoky old burner ever revealed. The second day in port was spent in receiving visitors. Mrs. Roberts and her children came first to shake hands, they said, with the spray. No one was now afraid to come on board except the poor old woman, who still maintained that the spray had Antichrist in the hold, if, indeed, he had not already gone ashore. The governor entertained that evening and kindly invited the destroyer of the world to speak for himself. This he did, elaborating most effusively on the dangers of the sea, which, after the manner of many of our frailest mortals, he would have had smooth had he made it. Also, by contrivances of light and darkness, he exhibited on the wall pictures of the places and countries visited on the voyage, nothing like the countries, however, that he would have made, and of the people seen, savage and other, frequently groaning, wicked world, wicked world. When this was finished, His Excellency the Governor, speaking words of thankfulness, distributed pieces of gold. On the following day, I accompanied His Excellency and the family on a visit to San Gabriel, which was up the country among the hills. The good Abbe of San Gabriel entertained us all royally at the convent, and we remained his guests until the following day. As I was leaving his place, the Abbe said, Captain, I embrace you, and of whatever religion you may be, my wish is that you succeed in making your voyage, and that our Saviour the Christ be always with you. To this good man's words I could only say, My dear Abbe, had all religionists been so liberal, there would have been less bloodshed in the world. At Rodriguez, one may now find every convenience for filling pure and wholesome water in any quantity. Governor Roberts, having built a reservoir in the hills above the village and laid pipes to the jetty, where, at the time of my visit, there were five and a half feet at high tide. In former years, well water was used and more or less sickness occurred from it. Beef may be had in any quantity on the island and at a moderate price. Sweet potatoes were plentiful and cheap. The large sack of them that I had brought there for about four shillings kept unusually well. I simply stored them in the sloop's dry hold. Of fruits, pomegranates were most plentiful. For two shillings I obtained a large sack of them, as many as a donkey could pack from the orchard, which, by the way, was planted by nature herself. That's the end of chapter 16. If you want to listen to the rest of the book, go on to the next podcast. If you'd like to hear my thoughts and notes about these two chapters, that's coming up next. Okay, well, let's get into chapters 15 and 16. From my point of view, reading these, I found a big difference in the style. I'm not sure if that came through in the reading, but certainly when I was trying to you know, create this into a, a, sp- a spoken word, I was trying to make it something which all connects together and is spoken out loud and uh, I hope in some way is entertaining, I found it much more difficult to make it flow and to make it... Um, conversational. The rest of the book has been very smooth and and flowing. We've discussed the fact that there was most likely an editor or editors that worked with Slocum to turn his notes and logs into, uh, into a book. I think that this part of the book, chapter 15 and 16, those editors' hand in things was a lot lighter than it was in other places. I think you get to see a lot more of who Slocum is in these. Um, the first part of this is when he's in uh, Bowen, which uh, I love the quote when he's uh, 
He's told that Boston and Bowen are the two hubs in the cartwheels of creation. Uh, <laughs> I've driven through Bowen. I don't remember it being, I remember some carts. I don't remember it being um, one of the hubs of creation. But uh, people there are, um, you know, he's going to have a lecture. And we see his comments about that, the fact that he's going to do this stereo opticon uh, presentation of what he's doing and they have the bellman go around and his style is quite acerbic it's quite kind of um, well it's what you might expect of a Nova Scotian sea captain from the 1850s he's uh, got a huge amount of experience of talking to people and being on the deck of a ship and being the person in charge which gives you a very particular way of communicating you can you can be the center of wit, you can be the center of sarcasm, you can be the center of humor uh, on the, as a captain of a ship because everything that comes you've seen before and it's absolutely necessary to remain calm and to um, make it seem like everything you're doing is under control. That can lead to very particularly idiosyncratic uh, spoken styles and behavioral styles from different captains, some for the more positive of the crew, some for the more negative. But in these chapters, I think we see some of his sarcasm also when they're talking to him in Cooktown about where exactly did the uh, the Endeavour get dragged up and and um, and and uh, careened and, and cleaned? Uh, they're saying was it here at the monument? He's like, well, yeah, you know, if uh, if Cook had brought a dredger with her, I see no issue. And they never said he didn't bring a dredger, so he could have just answered, no, it's you know, it was it would be on the beach and it wouldn't be here because this is inland and ended the conversation. But he takes this very sarcastic way of uh, dealing with things. We haven't seen so much of that. I think that comes out more in these chapters. And for me, each little um, parcel of information, each little place is a lot more isolated from the things that are around it in the narrative. So trickier to read, trickier to turn into a spoken commentary. But it, it reads okay on the page because you're able to just divide things up and you're not really so affected by the way your internal uh, narration sounds. But um, <laughs> a little bit more tricky. It's always tricky anyway when you're trying to read something that's 100, what we're we looking at now, like 125 years old. It's got a different style to it anyway. But it doesn't mean to say I don't appreciate it, just trickier to trickier to read. The recollections in the first part of chapter 15 say very specific and very personal to him, you know, how it went down in that church house 120 years ago when the lantern was a 30 cent affair. We really get to see that Slocum is, as we've talked about in the past, he's, he's kind of like an influencer of his day. He's telling the story from a very personal point of view and in a way which is still not exactly what other people we're doing. We, I think I mentioned this in one of the previous chapters. We, you know, we read something like South by Ernest Shackleton, and he kind of breezes over what's going on. He breezes over the details. If you want a really good version of what happened to the Shackleton expedition in 19, what was it the year that war broke out? Was it 1914? Um, it's better to read more modern books about it that have been somewhat dramatized or. Oh, what was, oh my God, what, is it Worsley? Was Woolsey. What was Shackleton's captain called? Oh my goodness me. This is bad. I've actually got a Weems and Plath um, a sextant, which I bought specifically because it was the same same brand as uh, as the one that was used on the James Caird. Oh, well, well, I just had, that's a gap in my uh, knowledge, but um, his account, that captain's account of what happened in uh, the, the South and their escape from 
from uh, Elephant Island is a better version than Shackleton's, but a more up-to-date version of it, which I've read. The book, is it called Endurance? The more modern book about that? A, a much more kind of up-to-date, exciting, nail-biting narrative, as opposed to Shackleton's, which seems to just breeze through all the details. Here we are with uh, Slocum, who's writing this, you know, 20 years, so I, yeah, I guess 20 years before um, Shackleton's book, 25 years before Shackleton's book came out, uh, and he's including all these details, how he felt. We see later on in this reading that he says he just was overcome with his emotions and sat down on the deck. He he broke down as a as a man um, in these uh, in this situation, something you would never have seen. Perhaps the difference is that he's not English. Perhaps the thing, maybe I've read too many accounts by the English, and at this point in time, obviously the English were buttoned up so damn tight that um, they couldn't let any emotions out. They're tighter than a duck's ass on that stuff, but um, perhaps other people elsewhere were writing in a more natural and uh, and descriptive manner. But um, Shackleton, I, 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 I had to then read around Shackleton to find out what really happened. I don't think he did, was the best... Uh, best purveyor of, of uh, his own adventures, whereas Slocum doing things which, you know, it's pretty exciting sailing around the world, but ultimately now we would consider this to be cruising around the world. And he has described the fact that the boat basically will sail itself. Well, I don't know exactly how he was making that happen. And we don't exactly know uh, what the performance would have been had he had some more modern steering gear, but he's making it happen. It's going along compared to man hauling sleds across the Antarctic. Like I think I'd probably take the cruise in the spray. So he's doing a lot with a little. And that is often, of course, what's happening with influencers is that they're basically taking pictures of their breakfast. They're taking pictures of the Uber car that picked them up. They're taking pictures of, you know, today we went to the Grand Canyon like millions of other people, but suddenly it's much more exciting when they do it. This kind of media propagation of your own story is based on wowing everything up. And as we all know, of course, never believe anything on the internet. Um, can we believe what um, Slocum is writing here? I think we can. Some of the details are so small and so particular that um, we can say this is a perhaps quite faithful rendition of it. When he includes his mistakes, when he includes his emotional failings, and I'm doing air bunnies here, um, his emotional failings as a person, writing that, you know, before the turn of the 20th century, I think he was being very honest. But uh, let's have a see. So Cooktown, he goes to see where the uh, where James Cook brought the Endeavour ashore. Um, the, am I getting that right? Endeavour or Endurance? No, Endurance was Shackleton's boat. Endeavour was... Okay, yeah, I kind of made all these boats. It's all swimming around in my head. Um, he then sets off up the coast of Australia. And I've actually, I've sailed this area of the world and you have to be cautious. You have to be very cautious because coral obviously can uh, move around. What was once a blocked passage can open up after a big storm. What was an open passage can close after a storm. What was an open passage can close after 10 years as the coral grows up to a, uh, a, a grows to a height underwater, creating a shoalness in the channel, which then you can't pass it. Things are moving and changing. Plus, of course, the shifting sands, which are associated with coral reefs. The coral breaks down. It's bitten down by fish, by parrotfish, by other uh, creatures on the reef and bitten down into sand in the end. So everything's moving and shifting and twisting and turning. But um, Slocum's style towards it is pragmatic and... Uh, 
I don't want to say blasé. I don't think it's blasé. He knows the area. He knows what's going on. Perhaps it's actually more born on the fact that he knows he can get through. As we discover uh, during these uh, these chapters, he's been down that coast before, but was terribly feverish and um, didn't know much of what was going on. But clearly he knows enough to know that he's been on a ship that went through that way before and was then probably thinking, well, my you know the spray is like a tenth of the size of some of the ships that he's been on. So... He can probably get his get his way through. He's advised not to uh, sail at night, but he sets off and, and does so anyway, and only has one close call. So his his judgment was good. Um, it's an interesting thought, isn't it, to uh, think about sailing through the Barrier Reef. As we find out in these chapters, the minute hand, <laughs> not the second hand, the minute hand has fallen off his tin clock. But if he boils it, then it keeps good time, he mentions later on. So you've got a tin clock. He's taking a lot of lunar sights. He's got a sextant. He's taking some sun sights. And he's finding his way through the Barrier Reef Channel. Now, that channel runs pretty much north-south, which means that in terms of knowing when you had entered it and knowing when you'd exited it, it'd be quite easy to do midday sights and then get a real feel for where you are in the channel in terms of its north and south uh, latitude. Whether you're too far west, whether you're too far east, that's a longitude calculation. That's a lot more complex. But I imagine there'd be some lights on the shore, perhaps even at this time. There'd be some ships and those ships would only be in that channel. So if you do see another vessel and it's not uh, aground, which obviously it would show lights and shapes if it was, um, probably best to stay close to that. He'd be only drawing like five five maximum six feet so uh yeah he's always gonna be able to sneak by where big ships are already sailing so there's a, a number of very pragmatic things that he can do there to keep himself uh, in the right place and at the end of the day the spray is only doing like four or five knots so even if you do go aground on something unless you're unlucky you maybe can whip it around and get it back off which seems to be what happens when he he does touch bottom um, and you've certainly got time to make decisions i'm not sure i'd like to do it in a modern yacht doing eight or 10 or 12 knots up through that way, uh, just using the same navigation methods that he did. Um, again, we get to see, uh, is, he, is he super confident in his navigation? He's definitely a good navigator. We get another example of that uh, later on in this. So he's confident. The charts, the charts at the time, <laughs> when were the surveys? Like probably he's running on charts, which have only been slightly um, altered since Cook went down that way. have only been updated somewhat since Cook went down that way. I remember sailing in Western Australia and uh, some of the charts that we had there, they were um, from like the 1870s or something like that. And we were up and down the coast of Western Australia. Some little parts of it, you had to be very cautious that you weren't um, trusting the charts, trusting the information that was being presented to you without really realizing that it was just information. It wasn't knowledge. It wasn't like, you know, an admiralty chart that we would have today that's been corrected every year for 200 years. It's a chart which, yeah, the last time we checked this was like 150 years ago. Slocum is using charts which have only got uh, a couple of soundings on. We've I've been very lucky here in the last couple of days. We've been, I'm going to be talking about this in another podcast soon. We've been donated a huge quantity of books there's a real story to tell around it um, as Spartan's starting to get going now my my company that does this offshore sailing uh, we're setting up a new base here in Lunenburg I guess what we describe as a post-covid restart for, for for Spartan and that involves getting a new home for her down on the waterfront here in Lunenburg lots more about that coming soon but um, we've been donated this huge quantity of books I'm talking about thousands of maritime books it's going to be awesome to go through that and uh, find out what gems are in there 
but we've also been donated four large boxes of charts. I now have <laughs> charts that are, some of them are, let me see, some of them are 100 years old. Some of them, I guess the median point would be like 1940s, 1950s. Um, and it's very interesting to look at those charts and realize that when you see the soundings, you can see a line of soundings going into a port. And that's just the line that that ship took of soundings as it was going up and down that coast. There's no soundings around that. So think of what, um, Sha uh, not Sha I keep thinking of Shackleton here. <laughs> think of what Slocum was using at the time. He's using charts which have uh, um, some information about the coast, but not much. And there's not much to be seen. There's no towers or big churches or facilities or lights or anything that we would take as land-based um, navigation points. It's just hills. Now it's going to have side elevations, which is very, very useful, but how accurate are they? We don't know. Are they accurately positioned relative to each other? We don't know. Has the coral moved? Has the sand moved? Um, and then the soundings on the chart, it's just the, that line of soundings. They didn't extrapolate around them. They're not using side scan sonar to mark their their way through the channel and you know 30 meters either side of them they're just doing a line of things so you better be over those soundings if you want to trust them or you got to have your your eyes out you've got to get the peepers at the top of the mast and see what's around you so he's he's making his way through an incredibly complex area um, he does underplay that I think because for him it's just you know matter of course and we get to see a little bit here as he's going past um, I'm jumping forward a little bit, but he's going past uh, Booby Island. He says that um, he was very feverish when he was on board the Suchet, and but was able to come on deck and see Booby Island. And it's a place where there was um, stores left on the island for for mariners and 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 people who had um, been shipwrecked and uh, needed some help. And his captain drops ashore some more supplies to go in there. A an idea of quite how remote these places were. No EPIRB, no AIS, no VHF, no HF just work it out yourself but people helping each other like it, an insurance I guess you'd say like a, a community insurance amongst the sailors if they got into problems on that um, eastern Queensland coast but also there was the the mail uh, the mail was the place uh, sorry Booby Island was the place where the, some mail was exchanged there was a kind of uh, as he says um, impromptu post office there and he's actually lamenting the fact that that kind of doesn't exist anymore and that it's regular packet services in his day that what he sees as being the romantic kind of golden era uh, has already passed quite what he would think of the internet and all the rest of it now I don't know but um, <laughs> it's uh, you can start to get a feel for the fact that Slocum in his own lifetime is seeing changes and things getting better and I guess charts getting more accurate and navigational aids getting more accurate and yeah he's um, he is living through a time of transition just the same way that we are uh, it's just what he's transiting from seems almost impossible to us to even sail around so he's talking about um, uh, New Guinea quite a lot in this one and I actually went and did some um, some reading and then I watched uh, YouTube uh, to get some ideas about New Guinea he talks about the fact that isn't it so sad that the uh, the miners are coming back from New Guinea and they're fever ridden and these poor wretches and so many of them have died and I wanted to answer the question what is that so what I discovered is that there was a gold rush in New Guinea in the early part of the 19th century and there'd been gold rushes in America and Kalgoorlie and different places and of course as soon as it comes to the press people from all over who read that publication wherever that story spreads to in the world they immediately boof they head to that place now Papua New Guinea would just be a, a, a or New Guinea as they called it sorry at the time New Guinea would just be 
a name of a place and off we go with our pick and shovel and go and make our fortune but um, as it happened in other places the problem was <laughs> that new guinea then and now is a very very inhospitable place i watched a fantastic uh, documentary called impossible journey um, new guinea i watched another one i forget the name now it's called something like papa new guinea expedition it's two young english lads a uh, pretty green uh going into the jungle deciding they're going to hike from the north to the south of uh, new guinea and very quickly realizing they've bitten off way more they can than they can chew and although they're carrying all their own gear the uh, guides which they get for them very quickly they realize the guides don't know where they're going at all and they're like six weeks walking through the jungle in horrendous conditions and they've got boots and tents and stoves and they're taking all their food and they've got big backpacks with lots of modern equipment which they soon realize they're going to have to thin down because they've got 40 kilos like over 80 pounds on their backs it's making it difficult to go across logs and climb and slide and all the things they have to do a lot of risky things great um great little documentary and if you just put papua new guinea into youtube you'll quickly see some wonderful uh things to give you an idea of the island but obviously these um miners that uh, he's talking about they are coming back from basically having been broken by new guinea and uh coming back no doubt with dengue and with malaria and with goodness knows what else and of course also we know Papua New Guinea still had headhunters cannibalism and uh and I learned um it has equatorial it's one of the places where we have equatorial glaciers the mountains are so high that you've got glaciers at the top and yet you've got tropical reefs down on the shore so just think what the kind of it's not that bigger place it's uh New Guinea is uh, half the size of um France so it's not that big it only has three roads, <laughs> which I saw another documentary all about the truck drivers that go up and down those roads. It's beyond thinking. But uh, yeah, have a see uh, for yourself a few things about New Guinea and you'll soon understand what Slocum's talking about when he's talking about the poor wretches being sent back from New Guinea. Um, he goes aground. He goes aground in chapter 15. Um, M. Reef. He actually needs to go on a chart and have a see exactly where that was. Um, it made me think a lot about an incident that I was involved in when I was in the Clipper race in 2009, 2010. We were going across the Java Sea as a fleet where one of the boats um, came onto or went aground on a coral atoll. And I was the captain uh, of the boat that then put people ashore to go and get equipment. Everybody got off okay. There was no injuries. It was all good. But uh, the boat itself was never to be removed from that uh, reef and a lot of equipment needed to be taken off and things secured and cleaned and um, it was my boat that went and did that and uh, it, it's very interesting to see exactly what that what that means going ashore on a coral reef atoll like what's that is that like you know the film the beach is it is it like going to the Seychelles no no this is just like broken pieces of coral that are kind of like um little sticks of coral, little rounds of coral, very uneven kind of uh, ground, very lightweight stuff, very difficult to kind of make your way through and uh, just jutting up straight up out of the sea. And um, it, almost impossible for uh, uh, him to avoid it. He says there should have been a light on it, but there was no light. He had a lovely quote, which I think I'm going to keep to myself uh, uh, for when I next go aground on something. He says, uh, I hadn't time to look after she struck, this is, he's looking for the light. I hadn't had time to look after she struck and certainly it didn't matter then whether I saw it or not. So <laughs> that's about the best you can see. If you didn't see the light before you hit, uh, it doesn't really matter whether you saw it <laughs> after you hit because it doesn't make any difference. You've already hit it. But um, he was expecting there to be a light. There wasn't one there, but he just 
touched bottom and then rotated off. It seems like the keel of the spray is uh, slightly shallower at the front and slightly deeper at the back. It's interesting on modern boats, because we have engines and because we want to reverse off things, it's sometimes better to have the uh, deeper part of the keel forwards and the shallower part aft. And then when you go into uh, reverse and start to really wail on that engine to try and get you back off the uh, whatever it is you've gone aground on, that's going to create a lot of bubbles and the bubbles are going to alter the displacement characteristics of the back of the boat. And then we get squat. The back of the boat will sit lower in the water and that means that um, if you have a boat which has a deepest part of its keel aft, then you're going to squat that even harder onto whatever it is that you've uh, gone aground on. If you've got a boat that's got a, um, a deeper part forward, then as the boat squats, it kind of evens out the, uh, the waterline a little bit and there's still a possibility of getting the boat off. For him though, with the deeper part aft, it means that the bow is free to turn and so he can back his headsail um, and whatever wind's blowing will blow him back off. So if you're not going to be using an engine to get back off a grounded spot, it's good to have your deepest part of the boat aft. If you're going to be using an engine, you don't want to have it in a boat which has got um, the deeper part aft because you'll just squat even heavily, heavier, and more, even more heavily <laughs> onto the uh, onto the ground than you were already. So he gets himself off, and I guess that's the other thing. Like I said laughingly there, you know, the next time I go aground. I, I've I've been in and around boats enough now to recognize the difference between what I'm doing and what um, a lot of um, people are doing with their everyday sailing. In everyday sailing, going aground, bumping the dock, all that kind of stuff, it, it's really like super frowned upon. And yet in commercial circles, you know, you will touch the bottom because if you've got a deep boat and you're trying to move the boat through narrow channels and take it up to a fuel dock that may or may not have three meters of you know draft and no oh, no it doesn't and it just happens a lot and so you can see that here also from Slocum he reports back what happened I wonder how many times other things happened in Slocum's journey around the world is this a faithful reproduction of everything that happened he's told us a few times about how he's nearly lost the, lost the spray he went aground in um, going down the coast of South America and remember the boy was trying to help pull the, the boat off with a horse and um, he's told us a lot of the things that go wrong I wonder if there are other times as well that he just kind of like omits bigger mistakes. Uh, maybe, maybe. I certainly, if I think back in my career, there's some I'll talk about and there's some which are, they're just for me. They're just for me to remember <laughs> as I go to the dock, as I go over the shallow ground, I think about the times I don't normally talk about, which are the, the, when it's it's gone wrong because of my direct mistakes. But I guess in, in Slocum here, he's, he's, again, he's choosing to share some of it with us, which I think is a little unusual for the time period that he's at. Um, is that the editor making him more personable? Is it his natural style? I guess we'll never know. But um, I actually got hold of a book recently um, to companion what I'm doing here. And it's written by Slocum's son. And it's it's kind of a, a retrospective and a, and a further description of the sailing around the world. And whilst he's able to add in a lot of information about Slocum's earlier life and his life with his wives and his kids and all that kind of stuff, which really helps color the character, when it comes to the son's description of the father's trip around the world, you can see he's basically just paraphrasing the book. There's very little else that he's able to add because, of course, you know, Slocum was lost. We haven't really discussed that yet, but he was lost only a few years after this, um, this expedition, this adventure. And so maybe there wasn't much time for the bigger and wider stories to be told, the, the little details, the, the drunken uh, slips, were, oh, yeah, that time I did, da, 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 you know. So we just have what he tells us. So I think it's good that he... he 
points out to people 120 years in the future, yep, I went aground. He's supposedly one of the most experienced sailors there is. He's uh, been skippering massive ships and first guy to sail solo around the world, and yet he's perfectly capable. And this makes me think of that bit very much at the, at the beginning of the book when he's, I think he's still in Long Island Sound or something, and he comes hooning into port. Uh, a lot of sail, a lot of very experienced people watching, and he manages to get it by, by luck and fluke. He manages to get it tied up, and it all looks vaguely under control but he says he has to keep his back to the crowd and just settle his breathing before he's able to confidently step ashore because he like any of us today will be going oh my god i nearly <laughs> i nearly destroyed the boat and my reputation so i always appreciate the fact that when he includes these things um he goes into um um, he meets up with a Tarawa and Captain Jones on the Queen's Jubilee. That's um, Queen Victoria. She was the first um, monarch in the UK to uh, celebrate her Diamond Jubilee, I believe. I, that's what Google told me. Uh, and then uh, um, Queen Elizabeth II obviously did that in... Nine, when was her Diamond Jubilee? Mm, Silver Jubilee was 1977. I know that much. So I'm feeling like Diamond Jubilee might have been 2007. Does that sound right? Hey, Google. When was Queen Elizabeth's Diamond Jubilee? I love Google. Look, instant. The Diamond Jubilee of Elizabeth oh. II starts date is February 6, 2012. 2012. Okay, 2012. So I was close. <laughs> I was only five years out. Yeah. So not many monarchs have done uh, have done that. But um, he, he, it would have been a big thing. It'd been a very big thing. It hasn't really happened before, and it's great to see that uh, in that faraway place, um, a, a little nook of the empire as it would have been then they're they're getting all excitable about and this is you know again this is an indicator of the, the world that slocum was moving through australia had a telephone cable that went up to the uk india had a telephone cable and america had a telephone cable um am i right in that i think i'm right in that there was there was a place on the beach in cornwall in the uk where there was a, a hut where three cables came in from like the three um, most farthest flung elements of the empire and it was one of the most heavily guarded places in the English uh, empire of, of that time because it was the way they had of keeping communication. A telegraph signal could obviously arrive within seconds, it could be transmitted um, and received within minutes and if that's not working, your next option is a ship, <laughs> which is going to take weeks. So if that uh, shed is taken, you could basically Pull, pull apart the English Empire. So it was great to see that they are now starting to celebrate things as a worldwide community of people. The monarch is having her Diamond Jubilee, everyone's celebrating it. Um, you know, it sounds like such a small detail in a world now which has got so much information, so much connectivity, but again, this was new new kinds of things. You know, they, they, the beginning of the 1800s, what day of the week it was, is probably a bit of a mystery to, to many sailors. Now we're celebrating things that are happening thousands of miles away in London on the same day at the same time as those people. Again, an idea of how far we've come in the intervening time. He says that he attends a Korobori for this. This is obviously a traditional uh, Australian Aboriginal dance and, and ritual ceremony, um, painting their bodies, painting their hair. There was uh, always the discussion with the fact that James Cook, when he went ashore, it was an unfortunate kind of situation for the Aboriginals that, that met with him, the, the native people of Australia, because their spirits would appear to them as uh, as uh, whitened bodies that's why they dust themselves down in white powder that's why they put the uh, red ochre into their hair because they are somehow holding on to some piece of very 
long-term information deeply held from history where there was some connectivity or some awareness of other human beings who had different skin tones and different hair tones and it's been i think i mentioned this once before when we were doing another um thing well i think about the moon when we were talking about that quite a few podcasts ago but my my degree was um linguistics and i remember reading about a guy called um, Ben Dixon, who was a linguist working in the 1960s in Australia. Um, it's not so easy now for linguistics and uh, anthropology uh, scientists to be, anthropological scientists to be in the communities in Australia. I think it's been abused so much over time that um, those communities now are a lot more guarded about what they share and what they don't share with, uh, with researchers. But in the 60s, um, that those mistakes hadn't yet been made um other mistakes have been made but certainly that there was a lot more information coming out so um ben dixon's research was with the walbiri tribe in western australia and they were trying to understand how far back does their oral tradition go and there was a crater that was within the the lands that they're they're at their um, heritage lands and uh, the crater had been separately geologically tested for when did that impact occur and they knew that the impact had occurred approximately 40,000 years ago so then they went to the the Walbury people and said what do you know about this this hole in the ground and they they had a story which was clothed in lots of religious contacts within their um, religious system but basically they knew that of the the two gods were fighting whoever it was and one of them threw a giant ball of burning rock burning fire at the other one who ducked and then that rock came to ground in that place so although it's clothed in this kind of multicolored jacket of, of of religion underlying it is a fundamental truth which is that they knew what had happened their oral tradition somebody somewhere at some point had seen this giant burning ball of fire come out of the sky and hit the ground there that means that their oral tradition was 40,000 years old so when we see corroborees and we have aboriginals who are clothed in uh dusting themselves down to go white and putting red ochre into their hair a lot of anthropologists are saying, you know, where did they get this from? When you look at the Moai in Easter Island, when they have got their full ceremonial dress on, they have red headdresses which go on top of their heads. And if you look at the uh, facial features of them, they don't exactly adhere to the um, the norms of the people that live in those islands. Very kind of like strong nose shapes. Um, some of them have got uh, beards, uh, so they, you know, they don't grow beards in that part of the world. So we're starting to look around now and start to say, okay, where did these oral traditions get their knowledge from, their, their little token bits of information that gets passed down? Some of it seems to relate very interestingly to um, new awakenings that we have now about how humans have moved around. I've learned recently that um, you remember Thor Herendahl did his expedition, the Kontiki, his most famous one, the Kontiki expedition, where he took a raft from the west side of South America, from Valparaiso, and then went out across the um, uh, across the Humboldt Current, across the South Pacific, and ended up in the island groups to the to the west, thousands of miles to the west of South America. And at the time, he felt that that was how people had ended up at those islands, that the current would take you directly to the islands. Then when DNA testing came along, they said, well, no, actually it doesn't, that doesn't show that at all. So it kind of blew the whole thing out of the water. What's interesting is that as we now learn more and more about um, the, the way that uh, DNA works and we get a lot more details of how DNA works, we're starting to understand that certain markers 
weren't detectable by early DNA testing. And those markers tell the, the true story of what's happening. And there is Aboriginal DNA, Australian Aboriginal DNA markers are found in um, very remote tribes in South America. But those markers do not exist anywhere on the geological path between Australia and South America. To say that they don't occur in the Philippines, they don't occur in China, Russia, you know, out along the Kamchatka Peninsula, out along the Aleutian Islands, the Americas, the Central America, everywhere that you'd have to go to walk it, those DNA markers don't exist. Now, are we saying that these people just went through completely isolated and didn't uh, interact at all with the people around them? That seems very unlikely. But suddenly their DNA markers are in Australia and in South America. So how did that happen? There's a lot of questions now being raised as to maybe we don't exactly understand how people migrated and moved around, which gets me to the point that the Australian Aboriginal uh, ritual dance of dusting down the body with uh, white dust and, and red in the hair, the question is, could they have been actually representing some previous connection with a Caucasian uh, branch of, of, uh, of, of humans? So when Cook turned up with white skin and no doubt with Scotch and Irish and, you know, sailors from the UK who had uh, got red hair and all the rest of it, the Aboriginal was like, wow, these are our people, they've come back. And well, I don't think that went too well for them. But uh, they, uh, Cook was, instead of being driven back by people keen to you know protect their land because of this nuance in their religious beliefs um he was accepted and yeah unfortunately as you know that um long term that did not did not work out but uh the korobori is a hugely traditional meeting point for the uh for the the village i think it's traditionally it's a lot of a lot of guys involved in that i'm not sure what the the women's um uh uh, uh, involvement in the Korobori is everything I've seen with those. It's a lot of lot of guys dancing, um, amazing body paint, amazing hair colors. It must have been a uh, unbelievable sight for for the people from you know from London, from Boston, what have you. And uh, interesting that it was kind of mixed in with the celebration of uh, of the Diamond Jubilee there. Interesting also that uh, that Slocum uh, faithfully reproduces details on the musical instruments that they're using. Again, we get a little idea of like how good are his details and his details seem to be pretty accurate. You know, he's talking about sticks being knocked together and uh, traditional uh, uh, musical instruments in Australia. Um, I think I think what I'm getting from the reading of this book is that you can trust him to kind of faithfully reproduce pretty much everything. He, re he reproduces exactly what he said he reproduces the details about the um social and economic places he's going to he's got unfortunately very dated terminology for the way that he uh talks about people he's got very dated views on uh, the way he um views people from different parts of the world we've discussed that previously but uh he gives a pretty faithful reproduction of the world around him as he passes through it in the late 1800s, which is you know, a, an amazing thing. We only just get the very first photographs at this time. We only just get the very first films coming out soon after this, very short films. So we don't really know much about that world. So it's great when you can find these details. Um, the Torres Strait for him is is a, a gauntlet which he has to run through. Obviously, lots of islands, lots of coral, lots of shoal areas, limited sea room. So when he finally breaks out into the wide open of the of the uh, 
well, the edge of the Pacific and then into the Indian Ocean, it's a very big moment for him because he's back to ocean navigation. And I've got to say, actually, Australia was one of the places where I, I learned that lesson very, very completely. I remember um, I was sailing between duh, 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 Cape Town and Wellington, and I had been engaged in ocean navigation for weeks and weeks. And as I started to approach the coast of Australia, because the nuances of where I had to go because of some of issues I was dealing with on the boat, I had to go through the Bass Straits between uh, Tasmania and uh, the southern tips there of, uh, of Australia. And uh, I was not thinking in the way that I should have thought for that particular part of the voyage. And what I mean by that is that when you're in open ocean mode, you are dealing with all sorts of new factors which you don't really have to worry about with coastal work and then when you go back to doing coastal work you have to very particularly switch your mind back to there may be islands there may be traffic there may be shoal ground that may mean that this you know weather system that's coming in has different characteristics because it's gonna be a lot shallower and you you need to start thinking like a coastal sailor again and i very nearly crashed into pyramid island which is in the bass strait just on the western end of the bass strait i was um at the nav station doing something or other and uh the chart plotter i had uh i had been looking at something on the chart plotter and then the cursor had ended up not on the boat you have to always recenter the cursor back onto the boat and at that point, uh, the boat had driven off the screen. So I continued to look at what I thought of as the chart, you know, like white open area. Not really an issue. If you're a thousand miles from anywhere and you forget to recenter the cursor for an hour, what difference does it make, right? Really, like not very much. It makes a big difference when you're doing 16 knots and you're close to the coast and you forget to recenter the cursor because then new things arrive <laughs> on the chart. So I'm sitting at the nav station. I go, oh, let's. Uh, I should recenter that chart. I recenter it and suddenly there's an island directly ahead of me. I'm doing 16 knots and it was 1.5 miles ahead of me. So. <laughs> I'm very aware of the fact there's a big difference between ocean navigation and coastal navigation now to the point that I think it came through in one of the YouTube videos I did for the Mariner. Um, as I get close to the coast, I wear different gear on deck and I have a different sort of style about me. So when I'm in the open ocean, there's very little point in having, as a solo sailor, historically for me, there's been very little point having a life jacket on because if I fall over the side, I'm going to get dragged along whatever speed forwards and then I'm going to drown. So that's like not good. So I just want to have it so I'm going to be able to pull myself quickly um, up off the side of the boat and get back onto the boat is a, is a good option. If I'm getting dragged forwards uh, with an inflated life jacket, that just becomes even harder to get back in under the guard wires. So that's why I have that uh, deck assist belt, which I wear, which has got one uh, safety Oh no, I guess the new version's got two safety clips on it and it's got my knife and it's got my multi-tool on it, but it's not a life jacket, it's just a belt to stop me falling into the ocean. I wear that and there's, I have an EPUB, a personal EPUB clipped onto that or in a waterproof pouch so that, um, you know, if I end up, my, my, actual, my actual concept is if I went into the sea and I got separated from the boat, at least they could like find my body and find out what happened, you know, like that's the thing that you can, <laughs> it seems a bit morbid, but that's about as good as it's going to get, right? However, when you go into coastal mode, you can have a life jacket on and an AIS and an EPUB, and then maybe someone will come and get you. And that's putting the life jacket on when I get within 100 miles of the shore has 
allowed me to change my perspective and to, to remind me to kind of go into coastal mode. So um, old uh, Slocum here is going out of coastal mode and going back into open ocean. And that is an opportunity to relax and just focus on the things which he's best at and enjoys most, which I think is the, is the voyaging. And um, we see on this one that he, again, he nails it with the navigation. Like he, he's smart when he leaves Australia, he goes past Timor, which is a high mountainous island, and he's able to um, take a good fix off that, right? And then we see from where he describes out some of his logbook during this reading, where it's like, you know, 130 miles and then 10 miles for slip. And, and he's doing his calculations all the time as he's going along. But I've got to say, if I had to do just dead reckoning with one of my boats, uh, I would be guessing numbers big time and it would take me weeks to be able to get those numbers anywhere near what is the what's the leeway rate for for you know an 80 foot boat with a modern race keel in it? Like, I just have no clue I have nothing to bring to that to that discussion at all maybe I should start to find out I actually put some notes somewhere but uh, Slocum is obviously completely on it knows the spray inside and out and knows his own navigation method we this is where he discusses the fact that his tin clock has now only got an hour hand when you think that you're trying to normally be accurate to the second to get a sun sight and he's got a clock that just does hours and only after you boiled it um, you can see that he's he's using other you know, there's a lot of indicators out there that can be used. I love there's a story, a more modern story of some um, West Coast, American West Coast students finding their way to Hawaii by following the tracks of the aeroplanes. They figured that <laughs> they figured that some aeroplanes are going way north on a great circle route to Asia. So don't follow those ones is not really an issue. So anything else which is going due west must be heading towards Hawaii. And indeed, they were correct and they managed to make it. So with no navigational equipment, they found Hawaii by using an airplane. Now, obviously, Slocum doesn't have airplanes, but he's looking at wave sets. He's looking at the sun. He's looking at the moon. He's looking at a lot more subtle things. And because he's an expert in it and been doing it his whole working life, he's able to interpret that constellation of information into a fix and is it just like a guess no he is able to nail like finding christmas island in the middle of the uh middle of the wide open tracks of the open ocean he's he's nailing it again and again and um from that comes that funny conversation where he's talking about captain m is all he describes him at um which is the uh the captain that he had on the sushi was it on the sushi i think i forget now but um he's saying that uh when the captain hit Christmas Island that accurately. Well, he, uh, he, he, he was impressed with himself and he let everybody else know about it from the, 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 uh, the way that Slocum describes it. And then he also leads us on to this funny little description of the fact that as an able seaman many years before, he was in the actual jolly boat that had gone ashore to get the post. And although the captain had his post with him in the bag, it was until he, he had to wait until he got to the ship where the captain gave the mail to the first mate and the first mate gave it to the second mate and the second mate put it on the capstan for the ABs. Like that was the disconnection from, from authority on board those vessels in that, uh, in that time. So again, we get these fantastic like little, little nuances of his life. Um, difficult to read perhaps because maybe that was the point for the editor. Maybe it was he wanted to, or he or she wanted to keep in that those little details but how do you string them together you know you can only string pearls together like on a string where each bit's individual and separate you don't homologate them into like one rod of pearls do you you couldn't make a narrative from it so they just kept it in that slightly more disjointed form but um the uh 
the last bit there is that I learned a word while I was doing this. When I was young and at school, um, if we were going to um, nip, nip out from a lesson at school, if we were going to, I don't think I ever really took days off school, maybe a couple of times, but we would say that we were mitching off. And I had just thought that was a very, you know, colloquial part of the dialect from the, the southwest of England where I was living at that kind of age where I was mitching off school. But um, it's actually a word. And he says that um, the, the mate mitchingly put the uh, the letters onto the capstan head. And I looked it up with my, my little friend uh, Google here. And mitching is a um, adjective. And it means to, to let me just, I wrote it down here. It's uh, hiding or skulking. <laughs> so the, the the mate was mitchingly putting the letter onto the capstan head just skulked in and pop, uh, popped it on there so lots to be taken from chapter 15 um and lots of little details which again bring bring this stuff to life okay well that moves us on to chapter 16 and i really like this chapter i think uh, there's a bit of a return here back to the style that we're used to with slocum the kind of jankiness of of chapter 15's gone again I think there's a bit more of a story to be told. Maybe there was more information within his notes for him to be able to explain to the to the author, uh, to the the, or the the shadow writer or the editor, whoever it was, to, to make a smoother tale out of it. It was certainly easier to read. Um, he's heading over to Keeling Kokos at this point. It's 550 miles. And um, he, he describes there a very simple element, which we all know in sailing. You know, if the wind's going to blow from right to left or the tide's going to sweep you from right to left, then you're going to have to keep your course high up, more to the right than you were expecting, more to the north for... Um, for Slocum here, as he heads out into the the uh, the Indian Ocean, he's very aware of the fact that if he allows leeway to become out of control, um, he's going to end up missing the island entirely. Now we can say that he made a good job of guessing his leeway because he ends up uh, finding Keeling Kokos like directly ahead of him, which is awesome. Again, I'm never sure like is he being a hundred percent honest about exactly how that went down, or is he? You know, sometimes there's that kind of fake humbleness. People are telling you about one of the mistakes they made to leave the way open to tell you about all of the amazingness that they did uh, the rest of the time. I think that I think that he would know that there was enough people at that time who really knew what he was talking about. You've got to think about it from his perspective. Who is he thinking is going to be his audience in this if he's going to go and do a talk all about his adventures down at the, the local town hall or in a church or in a, um, a seaman's chapel or something like that who's going to be in the audience he's got to expect that it's going to be very knowledgeable people who know about sailing who are going to kind of call bullshit if he's if he's saying things that uh, are not true or not possible so i think we do have a lot of facts coming through here but there's always going to be a filter dependent on the personality of the of the author of course and in this uh, he describes the fact that he cites uh, Keeling Kokos directly ahead of him after 550 miles so whatever it is that he did did work um, and he says that he left 20 miles a day uh, for leeway so this is a 38 foot boat with a full keel with a uh, rudder which is hung off the back of the keel and if, if anything's got traction <laughs> that boat's got traction it did have quite a big rig there's no doubt about that and it had a rig which had quite a lot of weight aloft so it'd be easy for that whole boat to be heeled over quite a bit and for the lateral resistance silhouette i.e you know if you were looking at the boat from the side and you're looking at it just in silhouette now imagine just the bit below the water the silhouette there 
um, changes as the boat heels over. Its plan form shape changes, the boat heels over, and there's less or more lateral resistance. So whilst, yeah, a full keel boat with a classic underwater shape is going to have a lot of lateral resistance compared to more modern boats, which is employing some more complicated hydrodynamic tricks to make it grip the water, it's going to slip quite a bit. But whatever it is, he definitely has it dialed in. And I, you know, in that form, I would say that he's way ahead of where my own experience is right now. How much does Challenger slip to Lewid in 15 knots of breeze when she's beating? I have no clue. I have no clue because the majority of my navigation is done on um, electronic navigation sources, aids to navigation. We very rarely put anything on the chart, which I've discussed at length in the past. And just before you hit me up with a load of uh, comments about that, we keep a very, very serious logbook with 30 standard points which go in every hour. So we do know where we are, but we're not popping it on the chart and working out leeway and all the rest of it. We are running primarily with course over the ground and even course over the ground uh, done as a true bearing. So I'm already accounting for where the boat is slipping and sliding with the course over the ground. I'm asking Helms people to maintain a particular course over the ground true heading rather than um, worrying about the um, the vagaries of the compass and the tides and all the rest of it. But for Slocum, he knows his boat absolutely. He absolutely nails his uh, leeway calculation. And of course, this is where it turns up that he's um, bang on the nose when he gets to Keeling Cocos. So this is where uh, he ends up losing it just a little bit. And again, a, perhaps a little description of um, of, of a moment um, by a fellow human being out in the middle of nowhere 120 years ago, but makes him so, so understandable and so relatable. I guess my I, I'm somewhat... Um, somewhat biased in this because I've done something like this myself and I have um, been out there and, and been emotional and, and had my, my triumphs and my disasters. I know what it is to um, to get things wrong, to get things right, to, to, to fall down a little bit and have to pick yourself up. Okay, and here's the quote from uh, from the beginning of chapter 16 where, where this situation arises. He says, my reckoning was up and springing aloft, I saw from halfway up the mast coconut trees standing out of the water ahead. I expected to see this. Still, it thrilled me as an electric shot might have done. I slid down the mast, trembling under the strangest sensations, and not able to resist the impulse, I sat on deck and gave way to my emotions. To folks in a parlour on shore, this may seem weak indeed, but I am telling the story of a voyage alone. Now, I think we've all watched enough reality TV now that uh, every um, every person there is, every minor celebrity there is, has broken down and cried over whatever it is that affects them in the Big Brother house or on that far-flung island with the camera crew standing around, whatever it is. So we don't really think of that, of him receiving criticism for acting in that way. But as we said, you know, the, the audiences that he would be talking to are audiences who were born in the 19th century who were of a, a different disposition and if they were English they definitely wouldn't understand what was going on if he was having an emotion um, so he, he's almost sort of apologizing there like yeah you know you know, I, I was weak or something like that but as he says very clearly here and he's very um, clipped in his words to folks in a parlor on shore this may seem weak indeed but I am telling the story of a voyage 
alone. He was the first person to go and do this. God knows what was going through his mind. There'd definitely be the thought of, you know, if I mess this up, I've made such a big deal of it that everyone is going to be looking at me, um, you know, in the in the 18th, 19th century way of doing that, which would be that they might write him a letter or send him a telegram or something like that. Uh, but the, the, the basis is still there. What happened to him, happened to him. This is how he explains it. This is how, what he felt. This is his experience. And having been in similar circumstances, um, it does affect you like that. The end of a long voyage is always very important to every crew member that's on a boat. And if it's your first trip across the Atlantic, that's how it's going to feel to come into port. My God, we're here. You know, we haven't seen any land for days and days and days, weeks and weeks. And suddenly there's land. You could have that experience from doing your first crossing over lake. You could have that experience from sailing around the world. But he at least starts to tell us about these things. He explains his emotions. He opens up a little bit. And I think that's always the most surprising thing about this book by Slocum. As we saw in chapter 15, where it was a little bit more made straight from the horse's mouth, he's quite, I think I use the word acerbic. I think that's about right. He's quite kind of grating and, and, and a bit sort of acidic in, in his way of talking to people in his way maybe even of thinking but um he's also got that other softer side to him which is able to reveal a few individual personal truths about who he is and and what it's like to be out there and um one of the many reasons that i i love this book okay so he arrives in cocos keeling and uh he he's done a, a bang up job basically he even manages to, without touching the helm to drive the boat basically directly into the port um, but he's 2700 miles out of Thursday Island it's taken him 23 days and that means he's doing about 117 miles a day which is you know is not bad going and whenever I think of that I think of the fact also that he's not on the helm you know if a boat's going to be fast uh, upwind and remember he was having to hold that slightly higher course from 550 miles out to make sure that his slip his leeway didn't um, allow him to miss the island um, he, he's kind of harder on the wind and it it is more difficult to get good mileage out of a boat if you're going to be just lashing off the helm now autopilot's different the boat is steering itself but it's steering itself within the bounds of you know, a good sail trim but my experience of sailing boats on all points of sail and just lashing the tiller which we, we quite often do um, the performance is affected one of the primary things that you're doing is you have to ease off the mainsail if you're going somewhat upwind you can get close to your polars for upwind but I'd say you're in the 80% 85% bracket because the mainsail is overpowered and the combination of the mainsail and the rudder working together uh, that three to six degrees of rudder that you should have on when you're going upwind that imbalance is what gives the keel lift and takes it up to windward and perhaps some of the element that he's saying there he's putting almost uh one mile of slip for every hour on his journey some of that will be because he's not engaging the main completely and that means he's got the wheel lashed pretty much in the center um, and the boat will track along that perfectly but he would be able to keep a faster and more weatherly course if he was uh, helming the, the boat in a normal way or obviously today we'd have an autopilot doing it but still you know it's it's meant that as he says he's only had his hand on the helm for three hours in 23 days and is that is that really possible is it an extension of the truth well we just drove uh, the new maxi um uh which we're soon going to be changing its name but right now it's called weddle we just drove weddle uh, across from uh, france and the last section of it was from saint pierre the little french island just up the coast here from nova scotia 385 miles 
I think we helmed, I think I personally helmed about 20 minutes of it. And I was on, it was me on a watch on my own. And then the rest of my crew, the other three of them on the watch, they helmed because they weren't in a position with their experience levels to, um, to be left in a situation where the boat is not under autopilot. It is just got a lashed helm. If that goes wrong, if the, she suddenly loses position and starts to crash tack, or if she goes too low and gets in a position where she can crash jive, you need to be able to sense that immediately. And it'd be a bit silly to be just sat next to the wheel with it lashed. The whole point of lashing it is you can leave it. So I wasn't happy to let the crew um, leave the wheel. But when I'm sailing the boat, obviously I have a very, very keen awareness of exactly which way it's headed, exactly how close or far from the wind it is. And that means that I can lash the helm and leave it go below and do jobs. So I know I I gave the crew two, we were two nights at sea coming back and both of those from uh, nine o'clock at night till six o'clock in the morning, I was on watch with the helm lashed and we only ever had one issue where she went too low, which the wind had shifted and it just puts the boat outside of the parameters that a lashed helm can deal with. And then she's just kind of trolleying along, probably getting very close to a crash jive, but I immediately detected it and went on deck and dealt with it. But even with a modern race boat, that's a 1997 Kevlar and carbon uh, deep keeled maxi with a 35 meter mast, you know, uh, quite a conservative rig on her, uh, quite a conservative sail plan on her. But I didn't have to touch the helm at all. And I've, I've sailed Challenger 6,000 miles with, it's a little bit more than that, but 6,000 6, miles with no autopilot. And on both occasions, it's come about because we have autopilots and uh, they're available, but something happens, something goes wrong. This time with uh, Weddell, there was one cable from the Raymarine system which wasn't, uh, wasn't available. It was shorted or damaged or something. And that had clearly been a problem for quite a while on the boat which had led to the fact that one of the solenoids in the autopilot system had seized and we were not in a situation where we could take it all apart at sea there'd be hydraulic oil all throughout the lazarette it's just it wasn't important because we had loads of people on board crossing the atlantic and i could lash the helm for other bits on challenger i wanted to specifically learn how to do it because I have been caught out in situations at sea before where uh, I've lost electronics and if you're dealing with a big boat that's overpowered and you're on your own or you're shorthanded you need to have something in the bank where you can employ that simple tactic to keep the boat moving keep the boat sailing so I've gone uh, I've sailed Challenger with spinnakers with a lashed helm I've sailed it with code zeros with a lashed helm upwind downwind whatever you want, the performance is way off. I'll tell you that right now. It's nowhere near as fast as it can be when um, she's fully powered up, but it's usable. And that's all I was trying to develop that technique for. So again, I really appreciate the little moment here from Slocum where he, not only does he cross 2,700 miles of open ocean with a tin clock with only an hour hand and nails his DR to the point that he drives right into the... Um, the river plate but he does it with a lashed helm so <laughs> he's still still my hero <laughs> um let's have a see okay so he talks a little bit about the the history of uh of keeling kokos and the fact that it uh had this weird starting point where there were peep two different groups of people were like heading out there to take take it over um captain ross and then this other guy hair who basically seemed to have like a 40 40 women there as like his personal harem it all seems it sounds like something out of uh, uh like a kirk douglas and burt lancaster film from back in the day um 
But uh, I guess these are the crazy realities of life at that time. Like, hey, we found some islands. Whoever takes it over first, it's yours. I found out recently that there is a little part of Africa which no one owns. Have you ever heard of this? There's a little place between Egypt and the Sudan, which is there's two areas of contested uh, territory between them. And I think it's Egypt, which is really holding on to one of these contested areas. because It's like, uh, I think maybe it has uh, coastal access or something like that. The other part, if they attempt to claim it, they will forego their... Um, their claim on this more useful piece of land. So it just kind of doesn't exist. And there's people like go out there and try and claim it. But really to set it up, obviously you need like roads and government and post office and a mint and all those kind of things. But theoretically, and it's not very small, it's like a couple of square hundred, a couple of hundred square kilometers. I'm so excited. I can't even talk. Um, It's a couple of, uh, uh, you know, it's probably just a couple of sand dunes really is what it is. But um, yeah, there are still some parts of the world where you can go and um, claim a bit for yourself probably some bits of Antarctica like that as well you need a big coat for that one Um, but at this point in the 1800s uh, no like nice tropical islands sometimes came up uninhabited and available for rent so that's what that seemed to happen there and then some crazy situation um, with this guy Hare finally being kind of pushed off the island and, and dying much later on in Batavia, which I'd imagine Batavia would be Western Australia. I remember living in Western Australia and they built a copy of the Batavia. So I'm guessing, is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I'm not going to ask Google. I don't want to get into asking Google too much because um, it takes all the fun out of it. But uh, seems like there was a lot of children there, a lot of uh, kids that uh, Slocum got to interact with and uh, had a lot of, um, of fun. They thought there was a crab holding onto his boat because he couldn't get it off the beach. Like, And they didn't know what his blackberry jam was. And again, lovely, delicate human moments being communicated to us through 125 years because of this book. Um, he talks about the fact that these tropical islands, a lot of things are back to front, that there's crabs that eat coconuts, of course, coconut crabs, uh, these giant crustaceans which come up the beach and climb the coconut trees or f- find the, uh, the coconuts on the floor and rip them open with those massively powerful. God, I remember the first time I ever saw a coconut crab. I was in Japan in the Amami Islands, which are like the southernmost end of the Japanese uh, chain of islands. It's just off the coast, really, of Taiwan. And uh I was in my tent ashore doing an expedition and I heard this rustling in the jungle and like, you know, a pig sounds like one thing and a snake sounds like another thing and uh, some kind of little mammal sounds like something else. But this had a very distinctive kind of sound to it. It sounded heavy, slow moving, couldn't quite work out what it was. So I went out with my torch and... uh, you're kind of digging around a little bit under the bushes or what have you, <laughs> came face to face with the the denizen of the deep, which was there, which was this flipping um, coconut crab, which is about the size of a basketball with claws that are like as big as your hands, those kind of size <laughs> things. Have a look online for a coconut crab. They are wild. But um, And then he talks about fish that eat the coral. That's, of course, parrotfish, which uh, nibble away at the coral. And then these man trap shells. I couldn't really find out mu- much about those. So I'm going to have to dig around a little bit more to find out what a man trap shell would be. He might mean a, a giant oyster. I know certainly on the Barrier Reef, you have the giant oysters there. I've, I've dived with those. And if you, if you were to put your foot in one, I'm, I, I think you'd have a hard job getting it back out. Maybe that's what he's talking about. But again, from a European and an American's point of view in the 1800s, they would have no expectations, no knowledge. And they'd be going out to these remote islands and just having their minds blown, of course, by, by the... Um, the diversity of life that they encountered. 
Um, he talks here about uh, a near miss, and I think there is a little bit of learning here which can be uh, translated. His, again, we're talking about this kind of archaic language. He describes his compatriot in the boat. I didn't feel that I needed to change that word, or, but it, it definitely makes you uncomfy to, to get into anything, uh, any kind of language which could be seen as insulting today. But he and this other chap end up going out on a boat. Let's just reduce it down to the bit here that's most important to us. How can we take learning from this? Um, he's sailing around the world. He is clearly a very, very experienced sailor. And he uh, sets off on this boat. The sail blows away. There is an anchor, but it's too deep. There's no paddle. And thank God, there's some like stick of a pole of a whatnot. And they're able to wiggle that in the water, make something happen. And then with a bit of a gust of wind, they manage to get themselves ashore. It's something which I find myself to be more and more and more aware of as I get more experience in sailing is that the temptation is that um, you get too blasé. Like it always goes right or it has till now. And most of the stories are kind of like anecdotal, you know, jokes for a party and like, oh yeah. And then the, you know, the, the whatever it is snapped and then the sail blew out and that it's all kind of funny because nothing really went too badly wrong. But in that little circumstance, something very serious nearly happened. And uh, I think it kind of caught Slocum a little bit unawares as well. Um, I've had that a number of times. I've got to say, it so often ends up being things around dinghies. Like your big boat, you're, you're down to the details and you're, you're laminating the instructions and making sure that everything's just the way it needs to be. And then you hop into a dinghy and boom, all intelligence is gone. Um, do you have a light? Do you have an anchor? Do you have flares? Do you have a VHF? Have you got the dead man switch attached? Has this thing been pumped up? Have we got a pump? Have we got paddles? You know, so, so many things can go wrong and it ends up just being as, as serious as it would be any other time. For example, I went out the other night. We've just done a um, uh, filming for a, a review of the Torquedo uh, electric outboard motor, right? It's have a look at it. It's on YouTube. Maybe not just right now while this podcast has come out, but in the next week it'll be out as it gets edited. And um, it's an amazing piece of equipment. Uh, you know, have a look at it and see how it might it might fit into your life. I would say it's more expensive, but it transforms your little dinghy, which is a noisy, nasty affair into a, a magic carpet that you can go out on trips and myself and my partner have been going out for little trips around our bay here just you know we've got big boats so we don't get to just gunk hole and have a look at the corners and suddenly this eight foot walker bay dinghy has become this little uh, device that we can use to go off and you know have adventures great all good right we went off the other night and the fog came down and we didn't have anything with us <laughs> and it was only because i have like basic awareness of the area where I live and some pretty finely honed skills that I realized that this little island that we were like passing, that the island was longer than it should be, which is when I realized that we were not, we were not meeting it tangentially in the way that I thought we were, that we're actually rounding the island. So suddenly like, hang on, this island seems to be a lot bigger than we thought it was because we're driving around it. So we very carefully unwound ourselves in fog, which was like 20 foot uh, visibility, found a buoy, knew that that buoy was kind of lined up with another buoy, found that one, then found a mooring field of the local yacht club, then found the shore, then found our way home. We are only like literally within one kilometer of our house. But that's how it happens, right? It's just these little silly, stupid things that end up catching people out. I, I gotta say, I don't particularly like watching, uh, no, um, let me be clear here. I do not like watching videos on YouTube at all where people get hurt. There is no 
there's no benefit to be found there. So I like the ones where it's kind of like people make silly mistakes and you get to learn something from it. And I think Cypress TV has got a wonderful set of sailing fails. I love I love their channel. It, it makes me like physically sick to watch them because oftentimes I can see what's going to go wrong before it happens. But I use it as like a testing ground to find out what's going to go wrong. And, and how else has this been used most recently? I got the opportunity to borrow uh, one of those VR headsets um, that you know it goes over your eyes. You've got these little controllers, and you're in this completely immersive world. And I immediately, after the first 20 minutes of it, realized like there, there's a fantastic opportunity here for uh, for damaging myself. So uh, the guy that was lending it to me, um, he said we started talking about this and he said oh yeah there's loads of youtube videos called vr virtual reality to er emergency room so vr to er is a thing you can look up on on youtube so i watched it specifically to work out what kind of accents people make with the vr headset and realized quickly that some for some people it's very overpowering experience and they just totally like wipe out okay so i'm not in that category great and then there's people that are trying to do it when they're intoxicated or they're using drugs or something okay also very bad idea don't do that then there's people who have not properly cleared the area like okay we can guard against that and then there's people and that's where i found myself in the category who start to get more involved in it and then lash out or step out and then and then hurt themselves so immediately then took a series of actions which are designed to make the time i had with a vr headset safer so I think that attitude is kind of like playing the what if game. That's what I have to do in sailing all the time. And I bring that attitude home and I look, I, I, I do it on the road a lot. You know, I very rarely end up in a situation where I'm really close up or surprised by what another driver does because I'm always leaving a lot of space and room. It's because I'm, I'm most nervous, I guess, the fact that some little silly, stupid thing is going to be the thing that gets me. Like the thing that petrifies me on at sea is falling off the back of the boat when I'm having a pee and then sitting in the water and looking at the masthead light just disappearing into the distance can you imagine how angry you'd be at yourself like it's the ultimate the ultimate anger <laughs> would be i've killed myself so when i get in dinghies when i get on other people's boats when i get into situations with things i'm very cagey to always be on guard as to like is this is this is this kosher is this okay um i don't want to be that guy you know no one does really you know, but it's um Clearly, I think uh, even even Captain Slocum himself realized on this occasion he'd been a little bit too lax and nearly paid the ultimate price for it. All right, we're getting to the end of it here. It's been going on a little bit, this one. The whole the, the first reading took us nearly 50 minutes. Um, what have we got to say? Oh, yeah, he's got a couple of issues he's dealing with with his log. Um, he's saying that obviously he's getting eaten by things. A lot of fishing that we do uh, off boats, you know, a lot of the boats I'm on, they're going too fast to, to catch fish. I have people that come on board with different, oh, no, you want to have fast boat for tuna. Oh, no, you want to have this and you want to have a skipjack does that. It's like my experience is if you put a trolling line out the back of a maxi or an open 60 or a whipbread 60 or something doing 10 knots, you normally end up pulling the fish's tongue out or pulling the side out of its face. And then you've got this animal which then you have badly damaged and is dying slowly in the deep. That is not it. And all that I'm learning more and more about hunting now. I'm in North America. It's something I was always very strongly against. And I start to realize that the good hunters, the, the intelligent hunters, they actually understand what's the life cycle of the animal. They have respect for the fact that the animal may end up having a very, very bad way that, you know, being eaten by wolves of dying of tumors or something as a deer in the wild, wild is not a great way to go. A quick 
clean kill is a is not too bad a way to go i think good game fishermen would have the same attitude and would say uh this is the wrong way to fish for this kind of fish you know uh, you want to go on a little bit slower your boat from a fish's point of view is like a shoal of fish and then whatever you're trailing behind in the water is the lure they think oh that's uh that's a, a an injured animal an injured fish trailing the main shoal that's why they go for it right but you don't want to be deliberately putting yourself in a situation where your lure just damages the animal you don't get to eat it you don't get to catch it there's there's, there's nothing in that there's no honor in that right so um so we very rarely do fishing off our boats but um what i do know is that the last couple of feet of the trace has to be metal otherwise the sharks and the uh, game fish will munch on it and that's what's happening with this patent log that he's streaming out behind him as we talked about before kind of like the cables on your bicycle uh it's a long uh brake cable essentially going uh, out the back so that central cable is able to turn there's a kind of little torpedo thing and the back end of that torpedo thing spins relative to the front end of the torpedo which is attached to the sheath of that battery cable like uh, cable that goes back to the boat so the center is spinning in time with the back of the uh, the propeller and the front of it is part of the casing ultimate uh, result being you can drop it in the water and it it accurately records your uh, speed but if it gets into weed or if it gets eaten by fish um, that's why we don't use those anymore um, you know the times have gone along and times have got better and we've got better technology but that's what he was stuck with and uh, it, I, I'm wondering like how how little could you have given Slocum and he still will have nailed it like his logs not working properly the tin clock's only got an hour hand on it and he still knocks out these massive um, massive distances without an issue so the last part of our uh, this chapter is Rodriguez and I, I'm surprised it's not this one that got him emotional because he says it's the last big open passage it's 1900 miles he does it at about 126 miles a day which is fairly going along um and he uh he then knows at that point that everything else is going to be a bit of a milk round he's going to be hopping from point to point to point no big open crossings thereafter so um he's able to finally locate the island by identifying a patch of cloud where all other clouds are moving a patch of cloud stays still and that's what allows him to identify that the uh the island is ahead and we we know that from places like bermuda you've got morgan's cloud which is a very famous cloud that sits over bermuda nice warm uh semi-tropical and tropical uh, uh jungle across bermuda and um lots of transpiration lots of evaporation from the lagoon lots of evaporation from those shallow seas around it and that creates a nice little plume of um water vapor that sits up in the air and clearly identifies for a navigator from literally like 100 miles off okay here's the island so slocum is that's the thing he's using this wide range of uh of, of identifiers and and um little markers that he's learned over a lifetime sailing the the clock and the log and all that stuff is just kind of like add-ons that he uses to 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 check himself so um he does have uh, a nice little uh, take at the end of it. Again, we get to see in uh, a little bit more of, of who this uh, guy is at the end of chapter 16. He's had this very odd time in um, in Rodriguez where the the 
the Abbey, the, uh, the, they spell it A-B-B-E with an accent. So I'm taking that as being Abbey, but I think it's the, the, the religious leader, let's just say that, the, the head of the church there, has been doing a sermon and talking about the fact that like the, the Antichrist is on his way to the island if they all keep sinning. And then Slocum turns up uh, with uh, uh, you know, a, a storm behind him, lands on the beach and walks up into town. And suddenly some of the people think that literally the, uh, the Antichrist has turned up and it's... Uh, you know, it's Joshua Slocum. So um, the it, I think everybody gets the idea pretty quickly that no, he's not apart from that one old lady who stays in a house for eight days while he's there. But he ends up having a conversation with the uh, the, the guy and says um, the, the the religious guy, the, uh, the, the abbe says to him, uh, Captain, I embrace you. And of whatever religion you may be, my wish is that you succeed in making your voyage and that our savior, the Christ, be always with you. And to that, uh, Captain Slocum says, uh, uh, my dear Abbe, had all religionists been so liberal, there would have been less bloodshed in the world. <laughs> so we always think about people in the past being like, you know, over the top religious and that leading to violence and that leading to disagreement. Clearly, Slocum was not in that bag. He's got some harsh words, but if you see his actions and the way he treats people and the way that he interacts with folks, he's pretty fair. He's like a, he's a, pretty good egg seems very balanced and very fair and um and yeah i I, i'd like to have sailed with him so um that gets us to the end of chapters uh 15 and 16 we're getting towards the end of this now we're on chapter 17 that's page 227 in my edition here and we're only running up to 290 odd here um and the back of it's kind of an appendix so um we're going to be moving on to another book relatively soon i'm going to keep doing these i realize there's some bigger gaps between some of these as i go sailing but you know you can add it all together later on and we'll probably do is release it as an audio book and you can uh, uh listen to it from there but um yeah i wonder what to, no oh so i've got a little thing i'm going to tell you so talking about books so we got an incredible visit the other day from a guy called Bruce Hasse, who's, um, whose father was a very, very, well, he was a naval architect, a very keen sailor and a diligent collector of books. And um, Bruce has very kindly agreed to, uh, I think share is the best word, you know, if he ever wanted any back, if there was a better place for them to be. But 5,000 books, give or take, and we're going to be coming um, to, to Spartan, uh, to create an incredible library of uh, a nautical library, which um, I'm, I'm so grateful that Bruce has, uh, has decided to, to, sh- to share these books with, uh, with me and with, with you guys and with uh, anybody that's sailing with Spartan. We're going to be getting a new uh, offices and a new uh, facility here in Lunenburg. Um, there's more about that coming soon. I think it's going to be very interesting to hear a bit more about that, but we're going to install them all there as a proper library as the um uh the, the hasse nautical library i guess it would be but um the uh opportunity that that perhaps creates to to get into reading more of these books some of these hidden stories some of these forgotten stories which bruce's dad has brought together in this incredible collection and i was sent a book by uh scott booth who's a regular listener i know hello scott and um uh, I think I'm going to be reading that book next. So if you've got a book that uh, you'd like me to go through, like to share with everybody, the kind of rules are that it needs to be in the public, uh, what's the right word for it? The public forum, the public, like that. there's no copyright issues on it. And that's a great thing with Slocum's book, although it's like the tome for for sailors, uh, it actually is in the public sphere and I can, I can read it without uh, stepping on anybody's feet. If it's a particular author and we can connect with them and then get permission from that author, 
then that might be good as well. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But, uh, you know, we do a lot of stuff where I talk about technical things and racing around the world and all the rest of it. And I thought it's nice just to share some of this uh, older literature with um, with folks and, um, I don't know, just maybe bring it to life a little bit or whatever it is I'm doing here. <laughs> Enjoying myself, if nothing else. I hope you are too. If you're interested, there's uh, there's over a thousand people downloading this podcast now each time one's put out. Um, is that a lot? Is that a little? Well, in podcast world, if you're over about 1,500, then you're in the top three or four percent of podcasts. So, you know, we're doing okay. I feel like it's you and me are in this game together. I keep doing the talking, you keep doing the listening. And uh, if you tell a few folks about it and share a bit more information about it with uh, those who might be interested in sailing, then we'll grow a little bit further and see what we can we can build out of it. What, what do you want to build out of a podcast? Well, we want to share information. That's the deal here. We want to share information and, um, and keep spreading. If it's a little bit more successful, if there are people listening, then there's more of an impetus for me to do it because like this one, you know, reading the book, uh, obviously I didn't read it in 48 minutes or whatever it took. I'm not that good at reading. It probably took two hours and then it took an hour to edit it. And then I've done another hour of talking and then I've got to edit this like, this is it's it's getting on for nearly a whole day's work to produce one podcast so what we'll do is we'll in time we'll hopefully find some a sponsor who's able to make this that this bit of my working week also has a wage and then it's like okay now we can cement this into the structure of what's going on in my my working life each week and uh then it doesn't go away so yeah if you can share if you can tell people about it that always helps so much and um hopefully we'll keep keep doing this and and learning more about what there is to be to be told like you know is it worth listening to all these things well i tell you i remember crossing the pacific the first time i crossed the pacific as a whole from um Qingdao in china to san francisco in a race and we ended up in uh very heavy conditions like over 45 knots for two weeks we had over 70 knots for three days and uh I can remember clearly at that time writing a blog and saying that so much of what I was able to do on board the boat and how I was able to safeguard my crew and and deal with what was going on around me was based on received knowledge, which I had accumulated over decades of reading, um, sailing, nonfiction. That's the great thing about, you know, if someone tells you like how to hold a golf club, um, it doesn't mean you can go back to the golf course and just, you know, now you've got a fantastic uh, drive. But the thing is with sailing, someone could say to you, um, in the event of a storm, you need to rig man ropes from front to back with, uh, with knots every three feet. And there's this quick way of doing it. And now you know it, as long as you know it, then you know it, right? You just have to remember that fact and you can put it into practice immediately. So being able to transfer this knowledge down through time from these older books, I think it's, um, it's, it's in your best interest to keep listening. It's certainly been in my best interest. It's saved me on so many occasions. Good. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, me rambling on for a couple of hours. If you walk in a dog or clean in the house, uh, you've done a great job there. Well done. Time to go home or sit down or whatever it is that comes at the end of your labors. Um, but wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.